Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Trust and obey. There is no other way. There's no other way but to be happy in Jesus. Trust and obey. Amen. Well, early church father Athanasius, who lived, as some of you know, in troubled times for the church during the fourth century. It was a time of great growth and conflict. Athanasius was a steadfast defender of the faith against all manner of heresies. And he was instrumental not only in what we now know as the Athanasian Creed, but also of the Nicene Creed, which is still taught and repeated in churches today. The Nicene Creed was written largely in response to a heresy known as Arianism. It was promoted by a priest named Arius in the 4th century during the same time as Athanasius. And there were many meetings or councils held during these times to combat these types of errant teachings. Meetings like the one at the Council of Nicaea that produced the Nicene Creed. Well, looking back on these times, we're reminded that there's nothing new under the sun. From the moment Jesus Christ was incarnated, meaning embodied in flesh, given a bodily or human form, there was a pervasive goal driven by the very hounds of hell to reduce or to subvert the deity of Jesus. From saying that Jesus wasn't divine or that he was a created being just like the rest of us, that God was up here and Jesus was down here, that Jesus was not eternal, that he was not pre-existent with the Father, that he was subordinate to the Father in essence. It was these errant false teachings that gave us magnum opuses like the Nicene Creed, given to refute these teachings and to state clearly and without equivocation what we believe. And these creeds are of great benefit to us today. And we do ourselves a great disservice if we allow them to, to grow stale or unused, to not incorporate them into our church body life. Many a battle were fought to preserve these words that we have today. As such, it would be wonderful to read the Nicene Creed together this morning. But before we do, I would like to clarify two important points that may be a question for some. First, we're going to see in the Nicene Creed the sentence, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Say, wait a minute, pastor, we're not Catholic. Well, be of good cheer. That's not what that means here. The word Catholic in the creed is not to be confused with Roman Catholicism or the Catholic church. The word for Catholic is simply an old word that means universal. The worldwide body of Christ. That's all that that means. So you can with good conscience affirm that sentence. And second, the Nicene Creed talks about one baptism for the remission of sins. Again, a clarification point. They're not teaching that salvation comes through baptism or that baptism has any salvific effect whatsoever, but merely that we make one unified statement concerning baptism. So with that, I'd like to invite you to rise now and join with me in the reading of the Nicene Creed. If you would read aloud the underlying portions on the screen. We believe in one God, the Father, almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven 
and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And amen indeed. You may be seated. Well, we are finishing our two-part examination today of Jesus' commissioning of, His, his ordination of, His sending out of the twelve disciples, twelve men that He had poured into for a year at this point. Training up and equipping them to go. And he began sending them out in pairs for their protection, their encouragement, for accountability, to establish their witness, even according to the law of Moses, that we can tell you what we are saying is true. And two of us are here to testify to this. But not only are we here with our testimony, because you could just dismiss us as as crazies or false teachers. Jesus has given them power over the demonic and even the power to heal. Without the written Bible in their hands, the apostles were given sign gifts to authenticate the message that they were giving. If I make a claim to you today, you can open up your Bible to see if what I say is true. And you are commanded to do just that, like the Bereans of old. These people had no such option. They could not go to the Word to see if what these men claimed was true. That's the special domain of signs and wonders of creative healing and miracles. That's the reason Jesus gave these gifts to these men. But Jesus' sending of these men came with very specific instructions, didn't it? They get a list from Jesus on what they can and cannot bring, didn't they? And one is left on the surface to ask why Jesus is giving his disciples a packing list. Remember being taught in parables that oftentimes the meaning of the story, the the meaning of the parable was sometimes contained in the part that doesn't quite fit or make sense, right? Or there seems to be some sort of superfluous or extraneous or excess information. If something seems unlikely, look there. Or if something, if there's unnecessary information, look there. And while this is not a parable, the same kind of principle applies. Now, it seems odd to give his disciples a packing list. Hint, look here. Stop there, get your shovel and dig, because a key principle is about to be laid down. And indeed it was, as we saw last week. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey, except a staff only, their bread, no bag, no money in their belt. And finally, verse nine, but to wear sandals, he added, and do not put on two tunics. So a staff we saw, a walking stick. Protection from animals, though interestingly, it would likely do relatively little to protect from human attack, from bands of robbers. Their physical well-being and protection from humans would really come from God alone. And no bread, 
Oh no, no food. My greatest fear, apparently. If anyone's ever been in my office, I think uh, Deacon Grant knows my biggest fear because he's always stocking my office with food. And it's wonderful. He's the great enabler of my fear of going hungry. I just hope he never decides I need to grow in sanctification in this area and stops bringing food. I'll show up one day with an empty fridge and cupboards with a sticky note, thou shalt not fear. <laughs> no! There's no bread, no bag. And remember how seeing no bread and no bag, it looks redundant on the surface, didn't it? Because this type of bag was meant to carry bread. And Jesus just told us not to bring bread. So why would he tell us not to bring a bag that carries bread? Because recall that bag was also used as a begging mechanism. It was the tin cup of its day. Along with no money in their belt, we see that Jesus has stripped them of every avenue of provision, but that they are to be fed like the birds of the air by their heavenly father. And to know this faith that it will be required of them, they must exercise it. Just think about what the disciples would end up going through in their lives. They would walk through fire. They are going to have to know that they know that they know. The first mission trip is central to building those faith muscles. And finishing off the packing list, Jesus commands, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. Well, the main part we honed in on there was the two tunics, wasn't it? What was Jesus saying there? He's saying that when you're commissioned in my gospel, your financial status is irrelevant. And it's often a distraction. Two tunics was a way to flaunt wealth. You're to identify with the lowly. You want to be heard and known and give an audience for the message you have, not because they think you have money. There's nothing new under the sun. And as we'll see in our text today, that principle is going to come back around again as Jesus gives further instruction for their journey. So with that, let's begin. Mark 6, verses 10 through 13. Mark 6, 10 through 13. And he was saying to them, wherever you enter a house, Stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text, the guide that it is for us, the reminder oh, that these were ordinary men, that you elected to do extraordinary works, that you have ordained the means of salvation, the preached word of God, and that is what they did then. And we thank you that you have sustained us to do that still. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few months ago, I was driving home from a long road trip, and it was as the hours began to tick away, I knew it was time to not push it and to grab a hotel room for some sleep. And the exit I turned off on was not the best area of town, and the, the motels on offer did not look much better. But I also thought how pleased my wife would be with the cost of this motel. So it was cheap. It was cheap. And this was a rough motel. So tired, though, I didn't care. I dragged my bag into the room. I collapsed on the, I'm sure, nary-washed comforter 
And as I was laying there, I happened to look at the door to my room. And it took me a second just to realize what I was looking at here. Someone had blasted a shotgun at the door, <laughs> complete with pellet spray and all. It appeared the hotel had done little to fix it and was more than happy to lodge me in it. Now, I'm a turkey hunter. I know shotgun spray when I see it. Now, even in sketchy parts of town, bullet holes in the door would be a pretty rare event today. But it was not always so. Back in the time of Jesus and the disciples, inns and hotels, as it were, were considered highly dangerous places. You were taking your life in your own hands to stay at an inn, depending on the location. It was a place of ill repute. An inn was a place of immorality. One did not stay in an inn unless they absolutely had to in this day. And as such, travelers or, or foreigners, most of the, foreigners most of the time would stay in other people's homes. Very common. Still, this was a very communal time. And people loved to open their homes, to have visitors staying with them. This was very common in this time. So as we open our text today in verse 10, verse 10, Jesus commanded to them, Jesus' command to them does not seem out of place at all, unless we look closer. So let's do that. Verse 10. And he was saying to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Well, first part, wherever you enter a house, speaking for the reasons of lodging, yeah, that's normal. That's expected. We're good Jews. We're not going to be staying in a, in a dingy inn where we could be seen with people of ill repute. We certainly would expect to be staying in people's homes. There's nothing really to see there. But look at the second part of this command. Stay there until you leave town. Now that is interesting. What gives there? Well, first off, are the disciples just picking a home at random? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. So rotate the diamond to Matthew. No need to turn there. Matthew 10, 11. I'll read it. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. So they aren't just knocking on doors to see who lets them in. They're inquiring who is worthy in it. That sounds kind of snooty, doesn't it? Not at all. In fact, as we'll see, it's just the opposite. They're inquiring in the communities. They're, they're in where there is good soil. Where can good soil be found? They're looking for the telltale signs of life. They're looking for green shoots. They want to plant the gospel in good soil. Go where God is working. You'll know the voice of the shepherd. Where do you hear it when you're engaging people in the marketplace? That's where we'll stay. And by the way, in order for there to be people that are worthy, there have to be people that are unworthy. And that stings. That does not float the boat of 2021, does it? Again, the principle of the Sermon on the Mount. The disciples will not throw the pearl of the gospel before swine. The gospel shall not be trampled underfoot. The self-righteous and those who are dripping with pride, those cursing the name of the Lord, those who are obstinately hard-hearted and proud of it, they're not entitled to hear the good news of the gospel. They're only entitled to hear the law. And that is not unloving. That is the pattern of Scripture. Allow the law to do its work. The law is what? It is a schoolmaster, Paul says, to bring us to Christ. It is a mirror, Peter says, to look into and see ourselves as we really are. 
Well, who in here would buy a mirror if they could that did not show them as they were? It was a special mirror that smoothed off all the rough edges. It didn't show your hair out of place. It didn't show your bags under your eyes. It was a magic mirror airbrushing you like a magazine model. In truth, who wants that mirror? Nobody. Nobody. They want a mirror to do its job, to show us who we really are so we can fix it. That's what the law does. It shows us who we are. And if a person is self-righteous, if they are dripping with pride, if they're cursing the name of the Lord, if they're hard-hearted and proud of it, if you love that person, do not deprive them of the work of the law in their heart. Don't deprive them of that. To break up the fallow ground that the good news of the gospel might be later planted. Give them the boiling water of the law and watch it go to work on that egg or on that potato. They will grow harder or softer. That is a guarantee. So the disciples are being discerning about who they stay with. And that's great. And we see why. And we understand how that relates to our own evangelism efforts. But back in Mark, Jesus says to stay there until you leave town. Well, in my wrong thinking, I, I was kind of thinking, boy, you know, 30 days, 30 homes. Reach as many people as possible. Why does Jesus give this command? That once you have found the home, you do not leave that home until you leave the town. Remember the command of the tunic. Only bring one. Associate with the lowly. Question, what abilities had Jesus given to these disciples? To heal and to cast out demons. Think about these small towns and villages with words spreading like wildfire, the moment they start performing these miracles, healing people, what's going to happen? The people are going to come out of the woodwork. And what is the, are the wealthiest people in the town going to do immediately? Oh, my friend, you must please come and stay in my home, right? You better believe it. Without question, the wealthy and the powerful in the town, they would descend like hawks. If Jesus did not give this command, it's very possible these disciples could have been coerced or cajoled or implored to stay with these wealthy people. They would almost instantaneously be invited to stay in the wealthiest homes in the village. But bring one tunic only. Associate with the lowly. Find your home based on the soil you perceive and stay there. You start casting out demons and healing people, you'll be the bell of the ball and everyone will want a piece of you. The wealthy and the most popular will want you. No, stay in the home. One tunic only. Why are the disciples also commanded to stay in one home only? Well, it was the habit in this day and time for the snake oil salesmen and for the false teachers of the day. They were very itinerant in their ministry and they would go from town to town. And they would purposefully stay in as many homes as possible to get as much money as possible. The more homes you stayed in, the more money you could make. Pastors know, and Christians should know, the world will take any opening to attack the gospel. Whether in ministry or in your workplace, with family, with friends, with neighbors. If you name the name of Christ, you have a bullseye on your back. And people are watching intensely for you to make a wrong step. To discredit your message. Do not give them that opening. 
Jesus says, don't give them an opportunity to even accuse you. You stay in one house. You're not to move to bring in more finances. You're not to move to stay in a nicer home. Well, we could drop anchor there and do a three-part series on the contentment of the Christian right there. And as a side note, if you've not read the book, The, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, by Puritan writer Jeremiah Burroughs. I would highly commend it to you. Again, that's The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. It is well worth the read. But of this verse, Dr. John MacArthur writes that the disciples, quote, had been given extraordinary power, but that they were not to exploit it for personal gain, end quote. They're called to be content. They're called to be filled with faith. They're called to be bold. They're being sent to preach. And all of these things require a key element. What? That of discernment. That of discernment. Well, what does this look like? What's our model for ministry here? Continuing on, verse 11. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you. Stop there. Floating on the top here, we see a very plain truth. There are going to be homes of hospitality and there are going to be homes of hostility. The word for receive here is dekomai. It means to put out the welcome mat. Or in this case, remove the welcome mat. Your message is not welcome here. Thus, you are not welcome here. And they will not listen to you or receive you. Jesus is saying if they do not respond, if they do not act on your message, I have instructions for you. This is an active listening that's required. This is a listening that is followed up by change. They will not receive you. If there's no welcome mat, if they will not listen to you, they're not responding in repentance and faith. What are you to do? As you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Well, hear the words of great tragedy here. This is great tragedy. This was an ancient custom in Israel. There were, there were many paths of foot travel where often the shortest route would necessitate that Jewish travelers would go through Gentile land. It was either that or you could walk many extra days to go all the way around Gentile territory. Yet when the Jews would exit the Gentile land, as they would cross back over into Israel, they would symbolically shake the dust off their feet. The sand that had been accumulated in Gentile land. The Jews held the Gentiles in such contempt that they would not even bring the dust of their land back into Israel. I will not taint that which is holy with that which is profane. And the lesson, the symbology from Jesus' command here is a stark warning. To shake off the dust of your feet was to wash your hands of this person. You have heard the gospel clearly, consistently. And in the case of the apostles here, you've had mighty works. You've had healings done in your presence and you remain hard as stone. We need to understand the intransigence of the one Jesus is speaking of here. So pastor did not tell you to give up on someone you shared the gospel with and they told you to get lost. That's not what I'm saying. If that were the case, half of us would not be here this morning. You will know when a person has had the light of the gospel radiated in their life and they continue to say, I reject that, I reject you, I understand what you're saying, and I'll have no part of you or of your God. Now what do we do? And what did the apostles do? 
No, it's going to be a little bit different. We'll not have performed, you'll not have performed mighty miracles or, or signs or wonders in front of them. You will have spoken and demonstrated the words of truth to this person. So do we shake off our sandals in 2021 Lanesville? Well, yes and no. These were apostles, signs and wonders, leaving them who witnessed it truly without excuse. And we can't do that. So what is wise for us? How do we apply this in 2021? Well, continue to pray for this person. Continue to pray for them, but dedicate your, effort, your efforts elsewhere for the intransigent. Leave them with the law, as we spoke about, and move on. Surrender them to the Lord's will. Your responsibility lies only with your obedience to speak the truth, not with the results or the outcome. Salvation is of the Lord. And if we look at the Greek on that, it means salvation is of the Lord. Though the application here lies not just for the believer and for the evangelist. The application is for those who have heard and yet do not hear. For those who continue to vacillate. For those who, who know better than to openly reject the gospel because of culture or family pressures, but they quietly resist and rebel. The Holy Spirit will not strive with you forever. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. Repent and be saved. Which is exactly what the disciples preached. Verse 12, verse 12. And they went out and preached that men should repent. Well, guess what happens when you preach this way? Oh, the people will love you. Oh, the church will grow by leaps and bounds, such praise and accolades. No, not hardly. And Matthew gives us a much, much fuller reading of this commissioning charge. What happens in Matthew 10? What happens when you preach that message that men should repent? Well, there's no need to guess. Jesus tells us. I'll read for you. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. They'll hand you over. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a slave among his master. So you'll be brought before the government officials handed over, scourged, your own family will want you dead, persecution so intense you must flee the city. Yes, as we've said before, the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. Indeed. Well, we've got, we do have a few up in Canada that we've talked to you about that have dared to put their head above the parapet and they soon heard the cell door slam behind them. And you'll say that wasn't for preaching repentance, that was for disobeying the government. For not following health codes. That's just the pretext. They were jailed because they would dare say that there is a king higher than Caesar. That there is one king of the church and his name is Jesus. We do not obtain our right of worship from the government. 
let it be the Black Plague or the Delta variant or any other petulance, we will worship and we will preach repentance. The disciples preached repentance. Tell them that without putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will perish in their sins. Tell them that there's no other way to the Father, that every other way is a lie. Tell them that there is one truth. If you're listening online and the drumbeat of repentance and faith is not being preached at your church, get out of that church. The disciples did not preach a five-part series on how to have a better marriage. They said, repent. And guess what? Repent and you'll have a better marriage. They did not give a three-part message on becoming a better you. Repent and you'll become a better you. They didn't give a message on being a better father or mother. Come in repentance and faith, seeing yourself in the light of God's commands, seeing yourself as you are in the mirror of his law and all that he saved you from, and you'll be a better father. You'll be a better mother. The disciples are commanding an about face for those that are listening. Or to be more specific, quote, a change of mind regarding one's previous sinful life and the determination to be done with it, end quote. Isn't that wonderful? The determination to be done with it. Coming into agreement with God that you've broken his laws. You're coming into alignment with truth. Repentance is not a separate act of faith. Where we see the command to repent, it's given in the present imperative. Meaning it is continual. It's as continual as faith is. The sign that you've truly repented is that you repent still. The sign that your repentance was genuine at conversion is that your repentance grows deeper and stronger as the years go by. The repentance of a seasoned saint will carry with it far more groanings and far more sorrow than one who has just come to Christ. As Charles Spurgeon so famously said, quote, the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness that remains, end quote. The closer you get to the light, the more you can see the dirt. And you're appalled to be so close to that light with such stains on your garment. And it drives you to your knees. That's the beautiful walk of sanctification. To repent is to change one's mind. Say, well, that sounds easy. I just need to change the way I think. Okay. How you think changes what you do. You have not committed a single act We've not committed a single act against a holy God that did not first germinate in a thought or a line of reasoning. Not once. It began with a thought. And the victory against that sin and against that thought is given on the same battlefield. What is your thought? It is there that the battle is won or lost. So yes, to say that repentance is to change how one thinks, to change how one reasons, is to put your finger right on the very genesis, right at the beginning of your sin. Show me a sin you committed that did not begin somewhere along the line with your thought life. You won't find one. You won't find one. The battlefield is the mind. So we should not be surprised that repentance surrounds the thinking of a person. The repentant person quite literally loves what they used to hate. And they now hate what they used to love. It's an about face. A new creation has been made. You're not who you once were. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. If you have been taught that lie, flee from it today and run to the Savior. That is a most dangerous place to pitch your tent. 
It is a different gospel that teaches that you can come to Christ at some earlier part in your life. You went off and lived like the devil, yet still a Christian, just backslidden. There is no such thing as a backslidden Christian. Scripture is clear that you never slid forward in the first place. Those who have been saved put their hand to the plow and they don't look back, Luke says. Doesn't mean your rose won't be awfully wavy sometimes, but you plow forward. Never backwards. If your conversion experience sounds something like, quote, well, I gave my heart to Jesus as a child and I fell away in college, sowed my wild oats, you know, stop right there. Nowhere in scripture is that the fruit of true conversion. Nowhere. When Isaiah saw the Lord, when Isaiah saw himself in the light of the Lord, he tore his clothes. He said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, cleanse me, make me new. And then, you know, I kind of fell away after that. Wasn't really into the whole synagogue thing. No. Can you imagine Isaiah saying such a thing? Yet how often do we hear this in modern evangelicalism? If your story sounds anything like that, today is the acceptable day of salvation. Slide forward in repentance and faith and you'll never slide back. Repent and be baptized. Do not delay. Finally, verse 13. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Well, we've spoken numerous times about the casting out of demons throughout our series, and I don't see any nuance here to talk about, so we won't rehash it. But we do see something very interesting in the last part of verse 13. They were anointing with oil. Now, what's going on with that? We see it today in some circles. As Even if you go to Lifeway Christian Bookstore, you can buy anointing oil. So what's the deal with this? Why were the disciples doing it? What does it mean? And how does that translate to us today? Well, in order to answer this, we need to take a look at the Old Testament. We need to look at the actions of the priests. The Lord has given instructions to Moses in Exodus 30. And I'm going to read a portion here. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils, and the basin and the stand. Can you just see it? They're just they're dumping it everywhere. And you shall consecrate them, and they shall be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. So the disciples are using oil here. They're anointing with oil. And this is something that the people would have understood. This is something they would have recognized. But what exactly is it that they're understanding and recognizing? Oil represented the authority of God. It symbolized the presence of God to these people. So what are the disciples conveying by using it? They're telling you that what we are doing here is not of us. 
The power for what we are doing here does not come from us. This is of God. Look to him. Don't look to me. The use of oil is to give God the glory in the healing. As they feel and smell the oil, their gaze is drawn to where it should be on to God. Don't look at me. Look to him. There's no power in the oil. There wasn't then and there's not today. It is a symbol that God deserves all the glory for this healing. The disciples are just vessels and they're unworthy vessels at that. And how tempting would it be for a disciple to bask in the attention, to be a glory hog? The oil flowing over the head leaves no doubt who's doing this. This was a lesson the disciples had to learn. How often do we see throughout the book of Acts people trying to worship the apostles as gods because of the gifts God had given them? This is a lesson that must be learned now. The oil was key to this clarity that this is all of God. It is his authority by which this happens. So give God the glory. Did Jesus ever use oil? Nope, he didn't. Why not? He doesn't need to give glory to God for healing someone. He is God. He doesn't need to, for, to draw someone's mind and someone's gaze towards the heavens. Why? Because he desires that they look at him, the good shepherd. All the glory is his. And we see throughout the gospel where Jesus openly and freely allow people to worship him. He doesn't say, no, stand up, don't worship me, does he? He receives their worship. There's no need for the oil. There's no need. But let us not miss the beauty here. What a wonderful view into the compassion of our Savior. You know, saints, he could have demonstrated his power and his authority in a hundred different ways that would have been just as authenticating that he was God as he sent out his disciples. He could have roared from the skies. He could have shaken the heavens saying, here I am and I'm he. And everyone would have known. But what does he choose so often as the vessel to reveal himself? He chooses to relieve pain and suffering. He chooses to heal. We can't miss that. He could have done anything to accomplish this purpose. But he chose to heal. To know our Savior more is to love him more. Isn't it? So what do we do today with oil? What do we do today with it? Well, there's nothing wrong with using it correctly. If you anoint someone with oil to lay hands on them and, and pray for them, it is for the purpose of drawing their heart's gaze to the Lord. It is his presence and his authority that has the power, not any person and not the oil. I've seen people anoint doorways and physical objects that I would be much more cautious of. That can be getting into superstition like you're warding off the demonic, which of course it's not, or, or that the Lord uh, it causes the Lord to somehow dwell in that spot with greater efficacy, which of course it doesn't. The only benefit of that would be the sight or the smell of it that draws someone's gaze to the Lord, a remembrance, as a reminder. And that can be beneficial. But the Lord does not inhabit the tabernacle any longer. He has made his tabernacle in the hearts of his children. So we need not anoint objects as in Exodus. He no longer inhabits a building. He inhabits a people. And as we close, we see that Jesus used only a few verses to command his disciples how they should go, what they should bring, and what they should say and do when they got there. All pretense of self-reliance was taken away, wasn't it? 
They would know, they would know by the end of this trip that it is the Lord who provides. It is the Lord who heals. It is the Lord who delivers from the bonds of sin. And it is the Lord who saves. And that has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, you are the same today. Lord, the voice that shook Sinai, that caused the people to quake, Lord, that turned Moses' hair white as snow, you are the same God today that came down as a babe in the manger, wrapped in human flesh. You received our worship. You said, look to me, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, when you sent out the apostles, there was much they did not know. Lord, there is so much we do not know. Lord, we ask that you would be merciful to us. We ask that you would go before us in our ministry, go before us in our evangelism. Lord, salvation is of you. We ask that you would teach us to be obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.